Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Europe unveils its plan to rein in big tech, aimed at America's tech titans. But will it also hobble the continent's own digital ambitions? The EU's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because they can't only target the US firms. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and also coming up on today's show how a failed study has revealed a promising new gene therapy treatment for blindness. What was going on wasn't that the treated eyes weren't improving. It was that even those eyes that had received no drug were getting better, and they were getting quite a lot better. And the non-COVID science stories that were overlooked in this extraordinary year. I decided that I would contact all the major science journals and I would ask them what stories did they think were undercovered generally because of COVID-19 this year. And I actually got a really long list. But first, on December 15th, the European Commission unveiled a double bill of ambitious new legislation to curb the powers of technology companies, the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. Tech giants will have to change the way they do business in Europe or face fines of up to 10% of worldwide turnover. The EU's draft rules are designed... Back in April, Margareta Vesteyer, Europe's competition commissioner, was a guest on our podcast, The Economist Asks. She explained why this approach is necessary. What we see with the giants is that the antitrust work will not do the full trick. What we are considering uh, right now is what kind of regulation is needed when you become sort of, I think back in the days, you would call it an essential uh, infrastructure, you would call it gatekeeping. Uh, You know, it has many different names. But the point is that you're sort of beyond because you become so big. So the sister of of antitrust is regulation, and that may indeed be needed here. Will the proposed legislation restrain the potential abuses by big tech and set a new standard for the world to follow? Or might it end up hobbling Europe's own ambitions for its technological future? In the past, antitrust cases over past behaviour have basically proved pretty ineffectual against these very powerful companies in fast-moving technology markets. Tamsin Booth is our technology and business editor. So the fines end up being pretty tiny compared to revenues. Meanwhile, the changes being made end up being pretty irrelevant just because things are changing so quickly. So the big new change with these new rules is they're ex-ante and they constrain online platforms up front. Now, there's two aspects to what was announced. There's the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. Let's look at each one individually. First, the Digital Services Act. What does it say? So the Digital Services Act rules on content, they're about fast removal of illegal content. 
They're about measures that will hopefully prevent abuse of these platforms. And you've also got a range of other things, such as transparency measures, which are going to tell individual users of platforms more about why a particular ad is being targeted at you, what sites you've visited, what's making you a a prime target for a particular ad. Also, how content recommendation algorithms actually function. So lots more transparency there. It's not a truly radical change. Now, in addition to the Digital Services Act, there's also the Digital Markets Act. And that seems a little bit more radical and serious. What's in that? That's right. The Digital Services Act, it's not too much of a worry for big technology companies just because it's mostly about making them do more of what they're doing already. They have the structures already in place. The Digital Markets Act is the bit of this new legislation from the EU that is really radical from the technology industry's point of view. And the first thing it does is it identifies a new category of digital gatekeepers and basically addresses what the EU calls the negative consequences of some of their behaviours, sort of unfair business practices. And these are things like spying on smaller companies using their own data. The EU doesn't mention particular companies, but they're definitely looking at Amazon here. Or it's sort of a negative behaviour like locking people into particular services. And here we're looking at Apple, I guess. This sounds pretty onerous. Yeah, that's right. The most controversial bit of it is just this targeting of digital gatekeepers. And it's pretty well defined. You've got to have annual turnover of 6.5 billion euros or market cap of 65 billion euros. And you've got to be a platform with really large reach. So reaching 45 million or 10% of the EU's population. And these new rules, the Digital Market Act rules, only apply to these large companies. So this is where I think the EU is opening itself to the charge of punishing success a little bit when they create this sort of two-tier system. At this point, it's unclear how many companies are going to fall into this category. It may be as many as 20 companies. It could be fewer. But it's certainly the, the big American tech giants, unsurprisingly, do fall into the category. And the role of data is in the crosshairs. Yeah, sharing data is the really important element here. And of course, in the digital economy, data is meant to be the new oil So having to share your oil looks pretty onerous from the point of view of large technology companies. So essentially, the big gatekeeper firms are going to have far more obligation to share their data with smaller businesses and also allow lots of interoperability with their software and hardware. I think the devil will be in the detail when it comes to exactly what kind of data they're going to have to share. The other really radical measure is stopping these tech giants from so-called self-preferencing. So self-preferencing means favouring your own services. And that really takes aim at the synergies inside some of these tech companies, using one product to help another. And if you're going to stop self-preferencing, Apple, for instance, will have to allow other companies texting apps. So maybe Facebook Messenger to be a default option on iPhones, not just iMessage. And this is so relevant for these tech companies' business models that you've actually seen division among the tech giants over the Digital Markets Act. So Facebook rather likes the no self-preference rule and is using it against Apple, which it says is making unfair use of its ecosystem in a super self-preferential way. I mean, that's kind of ironic that one big web platform is sort of using the rules to its advantage rather than it's supporting startups, which was the intent to support competition, not entrench the majors. 
That's right, but of course, one of the major sources of competition for the tech giants is increasingly the other tech giants. So I think it's really telling that you're getting this kind of breaking of ranks. On the Digital Services Act, I believe the large platforms were presented a far more united front. Do you think that these rules will actually work? Will they have teeth? There's no doubt that the rules have teeth and the penalties are really quite severe. For the Digital Services Act, if you violate it, it's a fine of 6% of annual turnover. For the Digital Markets Act, it's 10%. You know, if you take Amazon or Apple, that would be a cool $28 billion. And you've also got the threat that repeat offenders could get broken up, though I wonder how politically realistic that is. I think the new rules look likely to be enforced pretty strictly as well. Of course, we're a couple of years off seeing how effectively and assiduously the rules will be enforced. But the broader question on will it work is whether these two acts are going to help smaller European firms. And I think the jury's a little bit more out on some of the larger European tech companies. And the most important question, of course, is when is Europe going to produce its own tech giant? At the moment, the biggest tech company is SAP, business software maker, with a market cap of around 124 billion euros, which is still pretty small relative to the American firms. So how do these rules affect the future of European tech companies? Well, if you're quite a big European tech firm and you fall into the category of a digital gatekeeper under the DMA, you're going to be facing really strict rules, but you're not as big and powerful as the US tech firms. But the EU's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because they can't only target the US firms, but it's hard for any European company to be put in the same bracket as them. I think it'll be really interesting to see how many firms in total fall into the category of digital gatekeepers under the Digital Market Act rules now, a lot of Europeans look at the digital map around the world and feel that their region's raison d'etre, for so to speak, is to be the regulatory area par excellence. Yes, that's right. I think Europe has taken a lot of pride in being a sort of regulatory superpower. And these two laws definitely put it back in the vanguard in that regard. But there's also an awareness of the drawbacks of that and that maybe it's not the be all and end all. I think the most pertinent comment on tech regulation in the region has come from France's president, Emmanuel Macron. He said, when you look at the map, we have what we call the GAFA in the US, so the tech giants, and you have the BATX in China, so Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, um, Xiaomi, and so on. So you've got a lot of massive successful tech companies. And Macron said in Europe, we have GDPR, i.e. unfortunately those initials are not standing for large companies. So I think Europe's going to reap a lot of praise for reigning in over mighty tech companies. But the region, as Macron, I think, was underlining, probably needs creative energy just as much as this restraining instinct. Tenzin Booth, merci beaucoup. Mais de rien. And you can listen to the rest of our interview with Margareta Vesteyer by searching for The Economist Asks on your favorite podcast app. And you can read Tamsin's analysis and lots more in The Economist. But you need to be a subscriber. To take out a subscription, just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. Don't forget, The Economist is a great holiday gift to reward yourself and those around you who you treasure after a very trying year. So go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And don't forget to tell them Ken Sencha.
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Science is built on happy accidents. X-rays, penicillin, Botox, and even Viagra would not be around without them. And now, a failed study has shown a promising new treatment for blindness. This was a gene therapy study, which is this idea that's been around for a couple of decades now, where you try and, and fix a disease caused by a faulty gene by replacing the gene with a working one. Tim Cross is The Economist technology editor. So this was a group of researchers led by uh, Patrick Uy Mann, who's an ophthalmologist at Cambridge University. They were studying a disease called Leber Hereditary Optic Neuropathy, an inherited disease in which the, the mitochondria, the sort of power plants that are present in almost every, every living cell, there's a genetic defect with them. Uh, and in this case, that defect causes the cells in your retina to die. It particularly affects men in their 20s and 30s, maybe somewhere around 1 in 30,000 and 1 in 50,000 people. And what happens is you get this very sudden and very rapid loss of your eyesight. So you can become you know, legally blind sometimes within a year. And at the moment, there is treatment for it, but it's, it's not very good. It doesn't, it doesn't work particularly well. So what did the researchers do? How did the trial work? They took a virus, um, a modified virus. They loaded it up with a corrected copy of the gene uh, and then injected it into their patient's eyes. And the idea was that the virus would do what, what viruses do. It would you know, infiltrate cells. It would insert its own genome into the genome of those cells. Because that genome contains the code for a working form of the protein, the cells would then begin to churn that out. And that ought to halt or possibly even start to reverse, they hoped, the blindness. But you said the trial didn't work. So what happened? Technically, that's right. It didn't work. So what they did um, in, in medicine, you have to have a control group. So I can see, well, how did the people on the new drug do compared to the people who had nothing at all or had this existing drug that we already had? And in this case, they, they, they went about building a control group in quite a, a sort of nifty way. So rather than giving the treatment to only some people, what they did was they put it in only some eyes. So the participants got you know, an injection of, of the real virus, as it were, into one of their eyes, and then a sham injection into the other, where you know, the surgeons would hold a needle to the eyeball, but not actually do anything. The hypothesis was that they would see a big improvement in the eye into which they'd injected the virus, because this was a, this was a late stage clinical trial. There'd already been quite a lot of work done up to this point. They were fairly confident that, that the treatment would work. But a few months into their study, it turned out that, you know, comparing the two eyes, there was very little difference in what was going on. And for that reason, it was declared a failure. So why was it also a success? Because what was going on wasn't that the treated eyes weren't improving. It was that even those eyes that had received no drug were getting better and they were getting quite a lot better. So it was equivalent to improving by about three lines on 
those letter charts that you see at the opticians where there's you know there's a row of five letters uh, big ones at the top and then they get increasingly smaller as you go down if you think about it this is this is deeply weird you put the treatment in one part of a person's body and a completely different part starts to respond why am i not so surprised by that it's viral material and it's traveling through the bloodstream and the bloodstream goes everywhere so wouldn't it be intuitive that if you inject it into one eyeball it would go to the other eye in the same way that we inoculate people in their arm, not to protect their arm, but their entire body. Well, the eyes are a little different. So if you inject things into the eyeball, there's actually no blood supply in, in the center of the eye. But you're thinking along the right line. So what the what the researchers did was they, they did some tests in monkeys. They, they gave the same treatment to monkeys, and then they looked at both their eyes, and they found that indeed the virus had traveled from the treated eye to the untreated eye. They think it had, it had moved not along the blood vessels, but possibly along the optic nerves. So on one hand, that's completely amazing. But on the other hand, maybe we should be a little bit worried that a treatment in one part of the body traveled to another. Yeah, I think if, if you're a medical regulator, this is the sort of thing that might make you arch your eyebrows a bit. You know, if, if, if a virus is sort of going walkabout in the body in, in, in a way that even the researchers didn't expect it to, you might sort of pause and say, well, hang on a second, is this actually safe? But the researchers with, with, with the monkeys, they looked elsewhere in the monkeys' bodies, and it seemed that the virus has only traveled a, a little way. So they couldn't find any trace of the viral DNA anywhere else in the monkeys' bodies, even in the visual cortex, which is the part of the brain that the that the optic nerve connects to. So although this virus did go wandering, fortunately, it seems in this case, it didn't go wandering very far. So this looks like a great win for gene therapy. Yeah, and, and it's an interesting insight, as you hinted at the start, into, into how science works. You know, they had this very clear hypothesis that was supported by a bunch of data. You know, treat some eyes, they'll get better. Don't treat these eyes and they won't. It turned out not to be quite that simple. And, and it's not quite that simple as a sort of good way to sum up the sort of status of, of gene therapy, because it's been it's been the future now for, for, for 20 years. And, you know, there have been some successes. There are, there's, I think, one or two gene therapy treatments that have now been licensed by the FDA. But I think it's fair to say, you know, progress has maybe been a bit slower than, than a lot of people had, had hoped. And like all these things, something that seems very simple on the surface, the more you dig down into the details, the more complicated it is. And in this case, you know, it turns out to have, have had a, a happy ending because in this case, the therapy does indeed seem to work pretty well. So when do you think it's going to go from the lab bench to licensed practice? This is the big question. So some of the researchers have set up a company called um, Gensite Biologics. They've got a uh, an application with uh, Europe's uh, medical regulator to to license this for treatment. And as I understand it, they're hoping to hear back by the end of 2021. That's brilliant. That's quick. Yeah. Now, are there any broader lessons that we should take from this accidental success for the design of future scientific trials? I think one thing it shows up is is the balance you have to, to try and strike. So there's this big push in, in science and especially in medicine at the moment to try and sort of firm up the evidence base on which on which this all rests. One way you do that is by deciding in advance what your scientific study is going to look at. So you say, this is what we're looking for. This is my hypothesis. This is how we'll test it. These will be our methods. You write all that down and you send it off. You, you register it somewhere with a regulator. And the idea is that if, if you do that, it makes it much harder to do sort of sharp scientific practice to, you know, to change what you're measuring halfway through the study or to sort of bury inconvenient studies that don't give the results that you want and, and, and promote the ones that do. And that's a really good thing. We should definitely support that. And the more of that we can have, the better. But this study is an example of, of the way in which even scientists often underestimate the complexity of things that they're, they're looking at. Unexpected things just happen. So if you're a research scientist, you somehow have to find a way to, to sort of balance the need to kind of rigidly stick to your research protocol to be sure that you're doing good science with enough of an open mind to take these unexpected developments in your stride. Tim Cross, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. 
To find out more about how medicine is harnessing the power of viruses to treat previously incurable conditions, listen to our Babbage episode, Viruses, Lords of Creation, from August 26th of this year. Finally, joining us, virtually of course, is Natasha Loader, The Economist Health Policy Editor and our Vaccine Supremo. Hello, Natasha. Hello, Ken. What do you mean, virtually? You're not going to spoil the magic. (laughs) Okay, Natasha, this has been a tremendous year. You have written many stories on COVID this year. How many stories do you think you've actually written? I have not counted. They've all really gone into sort of one long blur of a single story. So there's been a lot of great stories in science and technology, and you've authored many of them. But there's been a lot of ones that we've missed as well. And you've been taking a tally of some of the really interesting things that we haven't had time to really dive into. Well, I have really spent most of this year just covering COVID-19 in various dimensions. And towards the end of the year, I realised that there was lots of science that wasn't really getting much prominence because everyone was so obsessed with COVID-19. People were emailing me pictures and I was just like, I'm sorry, you could pretty much cure cancer and I don't think anyone's going to care right now. So I decided a month ago that I would contact all the major science journals and I would ask them what stories did they think were undercovered generally because of COVID-19 this year. And I actually got a really long list and longer than we have time to talk about, which I will tweet later in the week. Now, on the top of your list is the polio vaccine. Tell me more about this. So as listeners may know, the world has been at the last mile of polio eradication for years and years and years, and we have not quite managed to eradicate it. And it's a highly infectious viral disease. It affects under five-year-olds very severely, causing paralysis. And we've made these huge strides vaccinating children around the world. But what we've been seeing in the last couple of years are actually new outbreaks of polio that are linked to the vaccine that's being used. They're using an inactivated vaccine. So when you get this inactivated vaccine, you can pass it out through your body and then a mutated strain can then be passed on to someone else and give them polio. And it's not very common, but it's becoming increasingly common, which is what's caused the concern. It's called vaccine-derived polio. We want to stop that. And to stop that, we need a new vaccine that's not going to do that. And that's exactly what was reported in The Lancet. So we have a new polio vaccine and also WHO has issued an emergency license for it. So that could really help us in eradicating polio once and for all. That's brilliant. Now, in another healthcare area, the COVID crisis meant that cancer patients missed their treatments due to the danger and crowding of hospitals. But there was a lot of other really interesting cancer research findings this year. Oh, yeah, there's lots of great science. I mean, we could probably do a whole babbage just on what's been going on. So there was one paper that was really interesting in Nature in July, and it was about blood tests to pick up cancers. And the team had basically found out that they could pick up some cancers four years earlier than a conventional diagnosis. And what really excited me about this is this is more proof of a principle that a lot of companies have been looking at, which is, can we detect cancer in the blood? How does the test work? So the team here were looking at genetic markers in the blood. When you have a tumour in your body, it can shed cells 
which are detectable in your blood in the form of DNA. And effectively what's happening is you're taking a blood test and you're looking for the DNA that has been shed from that tumour. Now, tumours don't always shed DNA, but it turns out that quite a few do and can be detected. What are the limitations of this test? So the limitation of the test is you don't know where the cancer is in the body. You can pick up the DNA from the tumour, but you don't know where it is. And so you're going to need to use other tests to find out exactly what cancer you have and where it is in the body. But the reason this is so interesting is lots of firms are trying to create these kind of cancer tests. And if you can pick up cancers early on, they're much more treatable. I mean, that's the really exciting thing about this. And so if we can actually do this, potentially in the near future, we could be looking at a situation where we're picking up far more cancers when they're curable. That is really good news and so interesting. What other science stories impressed you this year? Oh, I mean, there were lots of stories that impressed me. There was a room temperature superconductor. There was the prediction that most polar bears will be wiped out by 2100. Bumblebees are able to induce flowering by biting leaves. That was pretty fascinating as well. But the last story that I have to say was picked by the team at Babbage was actually a dog story, which certainly wasn't the most important story. But, you know, who can resist a dog story? So this one is about measuring dog years. And there's this belief that if you have to work out how old a dog is in human terms, you take their age and you multiply it by seven. Researchers have looked into this as they do at a molecular level and looked at aging in dogs. And it turns out that this isn't quite correct. And they've come up with a slightly more complicated equation. And the way you do this is you take your dog's age, you calculate the logarithm of this age, multiply it by 16 and add 31. The formula's online if anyone wants to look it up. But anyway, the interesting aspect of this is that for older dogs, it actually doesn't make much difference. If your dog's around 10, the calculation works to about 68, which is pretty much their age multiplied by seven. But actually for younger dogs, it makes a huge difference. Your two-year-old dog is actually 42 in human years. And I found that fascinating because people think that they have quite young dogs, but actually they're probably getting on a bit. I found it quite charming, I must say. Can you tell me a little bit about the science behind this? So it turns out one of the things that ages biologically is written in our DNA. As we age, DNA gets marked. They're called methylation marks. And you can look at these changes and use them to calculate your actual biological age, whether you've had a facelift or not, or other treatments, or whatever you've had done, hair transplant, your uh, DNA kind of tells all, basically. And so that is what they've done, is they've looked at these methylation marks in humans and dogs and saying, well, you know, they're aging in quite a similar fashion, and so we can match one on the other. So if we find a way to reverse aging in dogs, will it work for humans? Do you know, funnily enough, Ken, there was another paper this year that made it onto my list, which was showing actually how to reverse aging in retinal cells. But yes, potentially, if you can reverse aging in dogs, you could do it in humans. Fascinating. Natasha, thank you. Thank you so much, Ken, and happy Christmas. Season's greetings and happy holidays. If you want to tell us your favorite science stories of the year, send an email to radio at economist.com. We'd love to hear from you. And while you're with us, please don't forget to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's the only Christmas present I need. 
And as a present for you, we have some terrific babbages over the holiday season, so be sure to listen and spread the word whether you've been naughty or nice. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, where I'm often naughty and rarely nice, this is The Economist. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.